This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Thank you. And so... I want to tell you about what, what an amazing thing this has been, the changes in Canada. We've had one year with our new law. And to uh, help you understand what it's been like, it certainly has been a big thing in my life and, um, and in many other people's. So, what's wrong? Who's in charge of the technical? The magic of technology. You just have to throw Shazam. There you go. Okay. You left it on. That's right. Sorry about that. Okay. So it's important to think about what constitutes a good death. And that's, of course, a very individual thing. Most of us would agree that one would want to be comfortable. That means that the pain and other symptoms are under control. It would want you'd want to be peaceful. No agitation, preferably in a private or a home or a home-like setting. And with good people, and you know, again, you can think of the opposite of a good death. Um, uh, stuck uh, in an emergency department with strangers, uh, noise, commotion, uh, being in under a truck. <laughs> um, various bad places to die and then you can think about you know what the best places to be but what's brand new for Canada and all of us is that now um, the death can actually be under your own control in many situations so let's see what happens um, what it's like with medical assistance in dying in Canada so the first issue is, who is eligible for this? This is what I do. I do assessments uh, all the time, and I'm assessing people to see if they are eligible. Now, there's easy stuff. Are you over 18, and uh, are you eligible for Canadian Medicare? Um, voluntary, that's pretty easy most of the time. There's very few situations where somebody's in a position to coerce someone else to request an assisted death. So it's, you know, pretty obvious in most situations. And I can tell you that over and over again, I meet a family or a couple, and the person who is asking for the assisted death, when he or she gets the details, looks more relaxed and and um, often gets a smile on his or her face when, when she's actually at the point of starting to plan and the person beside her tears up. It must be a grievous and irremediable condition. Now, grievous is easy. That's the only person who can say that it's grievous is the person themselves suffering with that particular condition. But it's up to me as the doctor doing the assessment to um, make sure that they've been offered treatments uh, that are reasonable, um, both for the condition or for the symptoms of the condition, and knowing 
that a patient can refuse any of those. It certainly isn't a situation where you have to have done your chemotherapy before saying, I'm finished with this cancer, I want out. You do not have to accept the chemotherapy, uh, but you have to have been offered it. The law says that you must be in an advanced state of decline. What does that mean? We don't have any definition of this. <laughs> There's really no, I mean, people will argue, but it's, there, there really is no legal or medical definition of what an advanced state of decline is. This is our problem one. In many situations, death must be, the natural death must be reasonably foreseeable. What does that mean? Well, um, I just left this room a few minutes ago to take a phone call about a situation where doctors are disagreeing on a particular person um, about whether his death was reasonably foreseeable or not. And um, I was able to find a doctor who, who will agree with me that it is reasonably foreseeable in this situation. So this is a constant situation that I was dealing with this morning and uh, we will continue to deal with. Health Canada website says that non-terminal illness may qualify. Uh, the Justice Minister uh, said over and over and over again that Kay Carter, whose name is on the court decision from 2015, uh, would qualify. And Kay Carter had spinal stenosis, which does not decrease one's life expectancy, meaning that she had a life expectancy of an average 89-year-old woman in Canada, which is between five and six years. So, and, and as I said, the Justice Minister interpreted this in public to the Senate and to the um, media over and over again that C-14 uh, would have included Kay Carter. On just last week, a judge in Ontario said that a 77-year-old with arthritis qualified. He had very severe arthritis that was limiting movement. It wasn't just pain that he was dealing with. Um, but again, this is what we're dealing with. This week, we are dealing with this problem of people trying to decide what does death, in the reason, death being reasonably foreseeable, what does that mean? and we're arguing um, the doctors with each other and uh, sometimes the judge. Now, each time I assess a person, I have to assess for capacity. And so, sometimes that's very, very easy. <laughs> I'll never forget when I met one um, man. <clears throat> he was in the hospice and I came in and I said to him, um, so tell me in your own words why it is that you would like to have an assisted death. And he gave me a five-minute prepared speech. It was very articulate. It covered every point that I would have ever wanted to ask and, you know, proved to me that he had capacity, <laughs> that he had thought about this very clearly, and, uh, and so on. So, I mean, sometimes it's really obvious. But there are problem cases where it, we have to really work on this. One of the issues with the patient that I was just discussing outside there with a colleague um, this morning was that he had had a history of depression. So what does that mean when somebody is asking to die and they have a history of depression? Does that mean that it's a mental illness and that he wants to die because of the mental illness? 
uh, in which case he doesn't qualify, or as uh, he doesn't he doesn't qualify as being capable of making the decision, because as you know, if somebody is suicidal, they can have all the rights taken away. They can be um, forced into treatment against their will. Uh, the police can come and handcuff them and take them away. So what's the difference between somebody who is now asking for illegal medical assistance in dying compared to somebody who is suicidal? Well, certainly wanting to die is not equal clinical depression. For some people, wanting to die is a logical, reasoned decision. Mental illness of other kinds as well. So, for example, um, a schizophrenic uh, there might be times in his life where he is, all his rights are taken away, he's dragged off to treatment against his will, according to our Canadian laws. But most of the time, when he's stable, you can expect that he has full rights of every Canadian citizen, including the right to ask for medical assistance in dying. One of the big ones is dementia. So once you've been diagnosed with dementia, does that mean you're no longer eligible? You must be capable of making a decision. What does that mean in somebody who has already been diagnosed with Alzheimer's? Well, what we do is make sure that each person understands what their medical conditions are what the prognosis of those medical conditions are. They must know what an assisted death is and what the alternatives to an assisted death is and must be requesting. And basically, this is the same as we do for every medical procedure of any kind. How do we determine that somebody can make their own decision, can sign their own consent forms as opposed to requiring a substitute decision maker? They must understand their diagnosis, their prognosis. They must understand the treatment involved and what the alternatives to that treatment are. And then they are legally and ethically the ones who should be consenting to that treatment or not. And then we have paperwork, lots and lots and lots of paperwork, 17 pages worth. Um, we have a three-page patient request form and this must be witnessed just like a will is by two independent witnesses. The assessor who is the, uh, a physician or a nurse practitioner who is not providing um, uh, has a two-page uh, form to complete. Um, the provider, doctor or, or nurse practitioner has a three-page one. Then there's seven pages to get ready for the drugs uh, and there's sometimes a consultant report required. There's always the coroner report required and, of course, the medical certificate of death. So um, this takes hours, believe me, <laughs> to get through all the paperwork. And then what happens to that paperwork? It goes to a committee um, uh, at this point under the coroner's service, the provincial coroner's service, that, that um, is overseeing all of the um, events. and. Uh, within a year, year and a half, we expect it to be done nationally instead of provincially. So it's, you know, th there will always be oversight for each of these um, uh, events. So we've only had a year in Canada. <clears throat> what can we learn from some of the other countries? 
Well, the Netherlands have had, had uh, assisted deaths for decades, and so has Oregon. And we know that most of the people who um, receive assisted deaths in those two jurisdictions have cancer, um, with um, some of the other uh, ones noted there. The diagnoses are not the reasons. If you ask somebody, why would you like to have an assisted death, they don't usually say, because I have cancer um, or because I've got heart failure. They say, I can't do the things I used to do. I hate the fact that I'm stuck in this care home and can't had to give up my home. Um, uh, I can't stand the the fact that that I can't make it to the toilet anymore. Um, that's what they talk about, not the disease. They certainly will tell us about the disease, but you know we've most of our patients have good medical care and they get um, help with the symptoms of their disease or the disease itself. So we've got early data in Canada um, and let me see if I do this. Yes, I can. Okay, good. So here are the total number of deaths in blue uh, and this is for 2016, so June to December. And you'll see that Ontario and BC uh, in the first six months, each had just under 200 uh, assisted deaths. But of course, Ontario is a lot bigger than BC. So if you look at the green, you'll see the percentage of total deaths. So um, the green shows that BC had um, about 1.2% uh, of all deaths in the, in the first six months of our new law uh, were assisted. And that for Canada as a whole, it was um, about 0.6 of 1% was Canada whole. And this again is the first six months of the new law. And if you look at some comparisons of these rates, so here we have, where's my, okay, here we have BC is the highest of Canada, and there's Canada as a whole. You see that Canada in the first six months had twice as high a rate as Oregon. Why is that? Backlog. Backlog. <laughs> yeah, there's several reasons. Um, one is the law. Uh, Oregon's law is assisted suicide and not assisted death, which means that the person must do it themselves. Um, the doctor cannot assist, can only provide the prescription. And uh, that rules out the, our sickest people who aren't actually capable of taking the medication themselves. Also, the Oregon law says you must be, the doctor must say that you are within six months of a natural death. And of course, our law does not. It has foreseeable future, which we are, you know, deciding for ourselves what that what that really means. So part of it is the law, part of it is, as you said, pent-up demand. Um, so here are um, the, uh, the Netherlands, and they have a law similar to ours. So we think that we're going to be heading that direction because our societies are fairly similar. We're, you know, rich, um, relatively liberal societies, and we suspect that we're going to be heading to that range. Uh, 
And then Belgium uh, is, is rather odd in the sense that, as you know, Belgium is sort of two countries. It's a Dutch and a French country. And um, Wallonia, which is the French portion, has a very low rate of assisted death. And uh, Flanders, which is the Dutch portion of uh, Belgium, has a, very, has a high rate. And so um, together, it's not that high. And Switzerland is uh, under 2%. I didn't put that on this, this chart. Um, this last one, which, oh, come on, IH, stands for Island Health. Island Health Authority in BC has um, a much higher rate of assisted deaths than anywhere else. Uh, why? Demographics don't really count because this is rate. Remember, they've got this is the this is the percentage of deaths. So it doesn't really matter that they have more old people. Um, they have certain kind of old people, <laughs> and they have certain kind of doctors. Um, they have. When, when June uh, 17th of, of 2016 arrived, they had five providers ready to start immediately, and no, no other health authority had anything close to that, certainly not our health authority. So what can we expect in Canada in the future? Well, somewhere between 2 and 5%, but I'm guessing much closer to the 5%. Uh, and that's of the total deaths. Um, so we'd expect um, more than 10,000 per year. And that translates to about 1,800 in BC or you know, 500 in uh, Vancouver Coastal Health Authority. So this is, uh, th these numbers are important for me and my colleagues because we have to say, we don't have providers. Don't have what? Providers, we don't have doctors. Oh who are willing to do this um, to be able to come up. So, I mean, we're doing our best to train new doctors and get people on side so that we will have uh, the ability to provide for our people. So my personal experience in the last year has been <clears throat> that I have completed uh, 71. Uh, and you can see that uh, although cancer is the most common, it's not 80% um, like it is in Oregon. And uh, that probably, again, has to do with pent-up demand and um, the difference in our laws. <clears throat> they have very few neurological diseases um, because of the six-month problem. By the time somebody is six months from a natural death in ALS, they can't um, swallow their own medication and therefore they can't use the organ law. Uh, a lot more assessments um, and what's interesting about the fact that there's a lot more assessments than there are actual deaths is not that I refused all those people. I refused some for sure. Um, some people were not eligible under our law but most of them um, wanted to know whether they were eligible. They wanted to get the paperwork done and then they feel better. Because they know that that means that if it ever gets too bad, they've got a way out. And it makes them able to, able to go through the next chemotherapy, able to cope with the next level of loss of function because they know, well, if it ever gets too much for me, I, I've got my way out. Now I'm going to tell you some stories. 
first one is the first woman, uh, first person outside of Quebec who had an assisted death in Canada. And I can show you her face and I can give you her name because her, she and her family wanted this story told. And she had ALS. She was a um, professor of uh, sociology at um, the University of Calgary. And she had ALS. And psychology, sorry, she was a psychologist, yes. When I met her, she was unable to speak. She had a feeding tube, required 24-hour care. How did I do my assessment? This was my first. I didn't know how. Nobody had taught me. Um, how do you assess somebody for, uh, for capacity when they can't speak? I'm used to being able to talk to people. Uh, luckily, she had movement in one thumb and one finger, and she could use an iPad to communicate very slowly with a lot of difficulty, but that's what we used. And she also had some facial expression. Uh, and so she could express uh, emotion on her face so that I could see emotion and I could uh, understand the words that she would type out very slowly. So that was my first issue, it was like, whoa! <laughs> um, here we've got this law, and, and, and how do I, I uh, uh, assess somebody for it? Um, we had lots of problems. That was only the first one. Um, the next was that she lived in Calgary, and uh, there were no providers in Alberta at all uh, at the beginning. Nobody was up and ready when uh, our law came into place. The colleges weren't ready. The College of Physicians of BC was. We had guidelines that we followed. But the College of Nurses wasn't ready. The College of Pharmacists wasn't ready. And so I couldn't get a pharmacist to, uh, to dispense the drugs. And I couldn't get a nurse to put in the IV. Um, and you know, I was a family doctor. I hadn't put in IVs for a long time. And I wasn't very good at it. Um, but that's what we had to do. Uh, I was the one who put her IV in. She certainly wasn't able to um, manage an oral medication. And uh, the issue with the pharmacist um, was a problem. I mean, I had to obey all the rules, and they had to obey all the rules. How was I going to get the drugs? Uh, I won't actually tell you that story. Um, and where were we going to do it? Uh, so she was flying in from Calgary, which is a big problem because she was so very, very disabled. But um, when we got here, where were we going to do it? We thought maybe the hotel, maybe not the hotel. <laughs> um, luckily, uh, as you know, I'm medical director of Women of Willow Women's Clinic, which is an abortion clinic, and it's a perfectly good place to have deaths. And we discovered that because we had no other place we could go. And so we arranged an evening when the clinic was closed, and I, she came there for her death. The funeral home, oh my heavens, they wanted to call the police. We thought that everybody had been watching the news and knew that it was legal, but <laughs> the funeral home wasn't ready for it. But we ended up creating a peaceful death with her and her husband and her best friend, and um, they were her last words were, I love you, which is the most common last words I ever hear. 
And that was to her husband, of course, and to me, she gave a thumbs up. She had a little bit of movement in her thumb that she would do like this as a thumbs up sign and a smile. So then we get into um, some other cases. Carl was, um, had, had really had, was at the end. Uh, he had had many treatments and hospitalizations with his two cancers. He now was at the stage where he was having difficulty breathing, he couldn't swallow anymore. And he had developed uh, pneumonia because he had choked. Um, and he had a very short life expectancy. They, he had palliative care, but the palliative care doctors had not been able to control his pain adequately or his, his problem with breathing. So when I came in to discuss uh, what an assisted death was with him, uh, he, I said, so your choices now are an assisted death or a natural death. And he looked at me and said, natural death? You're talking about lying in bed, pumped full of uh, drugs. That's not a natural death. That's a slow death, and I want a quick death. Oh, okay. <laughs> Now, the other part of the law that I didn't mention at the beginning is that you must have a 10-day reflection period between the initial written request and the uh, actual death, unless two, one of two conditions are satisfied, that death is, is expected within the 10 days or if loss of capacity is expected within the 10 days. And for him, both were true because in order to control his pain, he would have had to been basically asleep. Uh, they had not been able to control his pain with normal methods of pain control. So in his case, um, we were able to shorten it up and do it the following day. So he was in the hospital, right? It's not a very nice place. If you're thinking about a good death, how do you make a good death in a place that looks like this? Well, when I got into the room, his wife is in bed with him. You can see it's not a big bed. <laughs> they were not tiny people. <laughs> so they had the, the bed rails up so that she wouldn't fall off or neither of them would fall off. And they were snuggled up in bed together. And um, the daughters were uh, beside and there was laughter and there were tears and they made it a really good time. He called me his angel when I arrived. And let me tell you about Rita. So Rita had lung disease. She was living alone at home, but she had lots of family and friends um, support. She told me she'd had a great life, um, but now she was at the point where she could sit still and breathe. Um, getting to the toilet was a very big problem in the sense that she didn't have enough breath to manage. and. So she was at the point where she was going to have to leave her home um, or have 24-hour care be so that she didn't have to make it to the toilet anymore. And she was done. Very, very clear about what she wanted. So she planned her death day. Um, the family uh, came earlier in the day. They had a meal together and uh, said goodbye. 
but for the uh, afternoon, uh, she had three friends come by. They listened to opera music. They drank champagne and, and had some lovely hors d'oeuvres. Then they got her in her favorite nightie and, and tucked her into bed. All three friends climbed onto bed with her. And uh, one of them read some poetry that she had chosen as I gave her her medication. Now meet Peter. He was only 48. I mean, this is one of those tragedies where a young person had had a career, um, uh, a, um, he, he didn't have children, he had a wife and, and a dog. Um, and he had been stuck, he had lost his career, he'd lost and lost and lost and lost and lost so much that, for example, when it came to signing the uh, form, he didn't have two people in his life who were not either in his will, namely his wife, or, or um, uh, caregivers. And though, though you're not allowed to have people who are um, closely related to you who might be in your will, or caregivers. And there was nobody left in his life. He had been in a care home for years. The friends that he'd had from work and so on had kind of fell by the wayside. So Dying with Dignity provides us with volunteers mm. who do this for us uh, in situations like this. So they came to the care home and witnessed his, oh, wait a minute, he couldn't sign. Another problem. What happens when somebody can't sign their own uh, request form? Well, they have to have three witnesses instead of two. One who does the signing and two that say that this was done with the person's, uh, that this was the person's will, because he didn't have the strength in his hand to sign. So the other thing is MS goes on and 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 on. And why could I say that his natural death was in the foreseeable future? Well, by the time you get to this stage of MS, he was completely bedridden. Uh, at this point, one gets uh, chest infections, kidney infections, and don't heal from them without intensive care. And by the time you've decided you're not going to do that anymore, um, your death is definitely within a year or two. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, how, did, who, how did you get the three signatures for the witnessing? Through Dying with Dignity. Through Dying with Yes, they have volunteers, oh. Oh. and they go out and do our witnessing for us Thank when you. we have patients like this. They're wonderful. Okay, we had another big problem with, with Peter. His wife was angry. He said, um, this, is so, this is too easy. He shouldn't be able to do this. And he, she argued that I hadn't been following proper process. And she said, I'm going to fight for my husband's life. Now, in fact, things were a little complicated in this relationship. I talked to the family doctor who said, oh yeah, that wife, she, wouldn't, um, she wasn't willing to take care of her husband at home, which is why he went into the care home as early as he did, and she never visits. 
Now, it's not true that she never visited, but that's what the family doctor said. She never visits. Um, in fact, it was a very fractured, hostile relationship. But you can imagine also how difficult when one person is dying in a marriage like this. The care home, it was their first one, you know, over and over and over again in the last year. I've been to care homes where it's their first one and they're really nervous about it. And this care home was really nervous about it. So um, I, I approached uh, our lawyers and asked about this problem with the wife. And they said, well, you know, our law is clear. It's the patient's decision. It's not anybody else's. She can't do anything to interfere. Uh, but she can do things to cause problems for me. <laughs> and she did. I mean, she, tried, she made complaints against me. Um, so she did cause problems for me. But she couldn't um, uh, stop him from having what he wanted. And he insisted that he was going to have his death the first day he was allowed to, the, after the 10 days was over. And I said, no, you've got to wait. You must try to persuade your wife that this is your choice. It's really important because you'll be gone and she'll still be left behind. And she's got to live with this. I tried to get a counselor involved, and I got a counselor, but they refused um, counseling. Um, but she did come around. She did say, in the end, I don't like this, but it is his choice. I understand that it's his choice. So at the end, we came. His dog was snuggled up against his feet in bed with him. His father was there. And his father, at the end, his father said, I was there at the beginning, and I was there at the end. And let me tell you about Andy. So another problem we have is with the Catholics. Uh, not the Catholic people, but the Catholic institutions we have. <laughs> so the Catholic institutions in this city and in this country um, uh, won't allow assisted deaths. They also don't allow assessments for assisted deaths. Um, they don't want us talking about assisted deaths. Uh, so Andy's uh, son called me and said, my father um, says he wants an assisted death. He's in St. Paul's right now and um, was certainly not well enough to come out for an assessment. So I did what I called a flower visit, pretending to be family friends, coming to visit and uh, did the assessment. And so he was very clear. He had been through um, uh, eight hospitalizations over the last while. His heart failure was worse. He was still living um, at home alone. And obviously, this was not anymore an option. And he was refusing to go into care home. So the possibilities at that point were that he was going to die right then because he had pneumonia and he had heart failure. And that's a bad thing when you're 88 years old. But uh, he also had a chance of getting better because he was being treated for this. And if he did get better, would he get better enough to actually go home or not was a big question. It turned out that he did, in fact, become well enough to be at home. 
uh, for the 10-day uh, period. And his children arrived from all over to um, have a few days to say goodbye. But he didn't want them present at the time. He had two friends, a gay couple, who, who came. And uh, he said, uh, my sons are too emotional. Um, I don't want that kind of emotion around me when I'm dying. And so he was very matter of fact. He uh, um, uh, asked me how my day was going. <laughs> I, I had no trouble getting the records, oh, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, I, as I said, the people are fine. Oh, I got you. Thank you. It's the institutions who aren't. And another story. Penny was 102. She had had a great life, she told me, until she was 100. And then she didn't. She had constant pain. She reacted badly to all the medications. Like many old people, side effects were greater than the good effects. And uh, so she had tried to kill herself. And you know, quite often I'm asked this question, why don't people just do it themselves? Why do they want the doctor to do it? It's not easy to kill yourself when you are a very frail elder in a care home. What are you gonna do? You certainly don't have access to the right drugs. And what else is there that you can manage? She used a scissors. It didn't work. Her kids weren't too happy about uh, this at first, but she was adamant. And she got them to fly in from um, elsewhere. And they had three great days, they told, uh, told me, to spend together at the end of her life. And um, unfortunately, her care home was not in Vancouver Coastal Health Authority. It was in Fraser Health Authority. Vancouver Coastal requires that any non-faith-based care home is required to um, uh, provide, to allow provision of MAID. Provision of what? So, provision of an assisted death. Every, every care home in Vancouver Coastal that has not got a faith-based contract must provide. This woman lived in Fraser where they don't have to. And that's true of a lot of Canada. So even though this was not a faith-based um, home, she was not allowed to be there. We had to move her. She was willing to go through with it, whatever. And uh, her last words were, and I suspect she had rehearsed them, she said, I do not recommend that anyone live this long. So what the definition of what a good death is has changed. It used to be all of the first four things that I talked to you, but now it includes, under your own control, a time that you can plan to, be, to do with your family or your friends in a way that some of these people that I told you about have done. And the whole process of medical assistance in dying has allowed people what could be called an emotional insurance policy, 
where they can look towards the end of life with less fear because they can say, well, if it ever gets too bad, I know I've got a way out. And now I'd like to hear your comments and questions. Thank you.